Hello, friends. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about issues surrounding female health, particularly pelvic floor dysfunction. So if you have little ones listening, I just wanted to give you a heads up that we will be discussing anatomy and having frank conversations. So there is your potential TMI warning. Um, and also a little different from my normal interviews, I'm actually going to start off with a bit of a personal introduction because maybe you're wondering why I'm having this conversation on this podcast. So I'll just tell a little bit of my own story to get us started and I'll just set an awkwardness stage so everyone feels comfortable. <laughs> Welcome to Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology, a series of interviews with real-life homeschool moms, dads, and other educators on all sorts of topics that affect our lives as homeschool parents. I'm Amy Sloan, a second-generation homeschool mom of five, and I am so delighted that you are here. Here on Homeschool Conversations, we'll discuss educational philosophy, family life, and more. Come chat with us. It's it's a bit of a cultural joke that moms can't jump or laugh without a little bit of bladder leakage, but I actually have come to realize that's no laughing matter. And not only that, but the symptoms associated with a weak pelvic floor can be a lot more painful and embarrassing than just peeing when you laugh. While I had heard a lot about diastasis recti as a young mom, I never heard anyone talking about what I've since come to realize are actually fairly common pelvic floor struggles. So when I began having increasing issues with rectal incontinence, pressure, pain, I just tried to power through. Uh, once when I was out on a run about a mile away from home, I lost complete control of my ability to hold in my bowel movement. The resulting fairly traumatic experience of trying to get to a restaurant, having to use one of their bathrooms to try to clean myself up, try to be able to get home, um, was one of the most humiliating moments of my life. And you would think that that would have made me want to get help, but I just, you know, thought I just needed to keep doing my kegels and my other exercises. I th thought things would just eventually fix themselves over time. And it really wasn't until I was in one of my regular cycle classes and um, I stood up in the saddle for those of you familiar with cycling. And I literally thought my organs had started to fall out of my vagina that I finally called my OBGYN in tears, went in for an appointment and received a recommendation to go to a specialized physical therapist. And after this experience, I became a bit passionate just to start talking more openly about this neglected topic. And I, even though I've been talking about it for a few years now, I still get like a little sweaty talking about it. It feels really awkward because just no one brings it up. But when I started talking about it, I can't tell you how many moms have said something along the lines of, I'm not the only one. So when I let people know that about this interview today with Dr. Megan, I probably got more email replies and social media DMs with questions and comments than about any other topic. And that surprised me, but it probably shouldn't have. If you're one of the many people who sent in questions, first, thank you. Um, we may not be able to get to all the questions today, 
I tried to combine them as much as possible to make this a really helpful, encouraging talk. And I hope this conversation, first of all, just helps, helps you know that you're not alone. I felt so embarrassed and ashamed, like there was something wrong with my body alone. And it was a bit of a relief to realize how common, if hidden and not talked about, these issues are. Second, I hope you come away with some practical tips and solutions to begin your own process of healing, and I hope it encourages other moms to get help as needed. Our bodies are strong and powerful. They've nurtured babies, and if you're listening to this podcast, they're now educating the next generation, and it's worth it to take the time to protect our bodies, to help them heal, and to help them stay strong. Also, I hope that having this conversation right out in the open, in your earbuds, on the internet, helps take the sting a little bit out of the awkward of this incredibly important conversation so that you feel like you can have this conversation with a trusted friend or a medical provider. And the more we normalize these discussions, the easier it will be for moms to get the care that we all need. So that is a very long introduction. I never done that before on the podcast, but I felt like it was really important to kind of lay the groundwork here and the why of this episode. And now I'm finally going to introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Megan O'Hara has been specializing in pelvic health physical therapy since 2016. She graduated from Stanford University with her Bachelor of Art in Human Biology and from Duke University with her Doctorate in Physical Therapy. She holds certifications in orthopedic manual therapy from the Institute of Advanced Musco Musculoskeletal uh, Treatments and in pelvic rehabilitation from the Herman and Wallace Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute. She's trained in trigger point dry needling as well. And Megan is passionate about helping people of all ages and genders stay active, healthy, and happy through personalized physical therapy and wellness care. Outside of treating, Megan assists in education at Duke University in the Doctor of Physical Therapy program and with professional continuing education at Herman and Wallace Pelvic Rehabilitation Institute. Megan, thank you so much for coming and for sitting there patiently with that very long-winded introduction. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and um, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored that you thought of me when you think of pelvic health issues, because honestly, everybody that I know says they can't take me anywhere without me talking about pelvic health. So it's one of those topics that, that like you've already said, you know, people everywhere have these issues and people just are not talking about it enough. So like your lovely introduction for me. My name is Megan O'Hara. I am a physical therapist been specializing in pelvic health for over six years now. And, you know, I got into pelvic health not really knowing anything about it because it isn't something that people talk about a lot. I got to PT school and thought, yes, I am going to go into sports. I'm going to work with a professional sports team. I'm going to be just an orthopedic leader, right? And had a couple of classes and was really fortunate enough to have some professors and mentors in PT school that were big um, women's health advocates and pelvic health advocates. And they were kind enough to let me shadow with them. And it just kind of got me really started and really excited. And I was able to pursue some of those additional certifications and classes 
after graduation and a little bit while I was a student that have let me just kind of hit the ground running specializing in pelvic health. Uh, so a little bit about what on earth pelvic health physical therapy is. You touched on it a little bit in that introduction, some of the things that we talk about, but it does seem like a thing that you kind of think about physical therapy and you think like, well, maybe I had knee surgery or, you know, uh, back pain and I need to um, get a little bit of help with that, right? People don't really think about pelvic health as something that physical therapists do. They think about OBGYNs, midwives, that kind of thing. But it's actually been a specialization in the pelvic health field for nearly 50 years, about 45 years. And it's, um, it's come a long way. So you, you kind of heard me say women's health. And then you've also heard me say pelvic health. We started out as women's health. And now we realize that there are so many more conditions that pelvic health therapists treat. So we treat men, we treat kids, we treat transgender folks, we treat everybody. And so it, it's now called pelvic health, although you may still hear it called women's health out and about. Um, I'm going to try my best to call it pelvic health because I treat everybody. But basically the little elevator speech here is that we treat bowel, bladder, and sexual dysfunction as pelvic health specialists. Uh, basically, it's just a, a pretty wide practice pattern. And that's why there's so much extra education that we do and so much specialization to become these pelvic health experts. So, well, can we start just with the big picture for someone maybe who's not familiar? Like, what exactly is pelvic floor dysfunction? How common is it? What are some of the symptoms associated with a weak pelvic floor? I'm, I'm assuming most of my audience is, is predominantly homeschool moms, you know, who've probably given birth to a few children. So they probably know a little bit, but I would love to kind of hear your, your big picture explanation. Yeah, absolutely. So pelvic floor dysfunction is sort of that bucket diagnosis of there's something not working with a group of muscles, right? And that group of muscles is the pelvic floor. We can subdivide that dysfunction into what we say is hyper or hypotonic basically means your muscles are either working too hard or they're not working enough. So if they're not working enough, that's going to be our weak pelvic floor. And we see this probably most commonly after pregnancies and deliveries. I always think about it as, you know, you basically have this little baby jumping on the trampoline of your pelvic floor over and over and over again for nine months, getting bigger the whole time. Right. And then you have to get that bowling ball through the trampoline. Right. So that big, heavy baby has to come through and those muscles until we think about them and we have an issue, we're usually not strengthening them, right? We're not usually thinking about how the pelvic floor functions. You can kind of think about how your arms work. You know, if you've carried a heavy suitcase, you're like, man, that was a lot for those muscles. You don't really think about your pelvic floor having to do that same kind of workout, right? So as far as, you know, how common is it? much more common than I think we're even seeing in the research right now. There is a lot of statistics out there that say for urinary incontinence, it's up to 50% of women at some point will have urinary incontinence postpartum. So when we say incontinence postpartum, we're also talking about after like that six to 12 weeks past delivery. So very, very, very common immediately postpartum. But once you get through that kind of standard healing phase, we expect those symptoms to completely resolve. And if they don't, that's that 50% that we're seeing. If we take another side of pelvic floor weakness, we talk about pelvic organ prolapse, which basically means that part of your 
pelvis and part of your pelvic organs are actually sitting lower than they should be. So our pelvic organs include the bladder, the uterus, and the colon or the bowels there. And those can all move a little bit south for a lot of reasons. Pregnancy and delivery is one of them. Extreme weightlifting can be one of them. Endurance exercise can be one of them. There are lots of reasons, chronic coughing, uh, lots of reasons why we can develop pelvic organ prolapse. And it's not isolated just to pregnancy. And it's not isolated just to people who have been pregnant. You can get pelvic organ prolapse without ever being pregnant or delivering. And that can be about a prevalence, excuse me, of about 75%. So if you know three other women in your life, there are probably the majority of them have had some degree of pelvic organ prolapse. And that might be that things are sitting just a tiny bit lower. It could be that you might feel a little bit of heaviness and pressure in the pelvis. Or it might be that you've known somebody who's needed a bladder sling, or they've had a hysterectomy because their uterus was sitting lower. That feeling of you stand up out of the saddle, maybe riding a horse, but maybe riding a bike. And it feels like your organs are going to fall out, like something is falling out of the vagina. And that's kind of a, a classic symptom of a weak pelvic flora that's associated with pelvic organ prolapse. All that to say it's pretty common and it's much, much, much more likely than not even if we're not talking about pregnancy that, you know, someone with pelvic floor dysfunction. I just think that's so fascinating. Like again, just how common it is. And yet no one really talks about this as a common, uh, a common issue that women are dealing with. Absolutely. Well, how are issues with our pelvic floor related to, or associated with other abdominal wall issues, like abdominal wall separation and things like that? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. I think it's something that's getting a lot of media presence right now. There's a lot of these different um, diastasis recti or kind of that mom tummy, um, like rehab programs that are out there and lots of lots of do's and don'ts and lots of scary things out there. But basically the abdominal wall and the pelvic floor are best friends. So when you get a good pelvic floor contraction, if you can do a Kegel or a pelvic floor squeeze, your abdominal wall, that deep, deep layer of abdominal wall, it's called your transverse abdominus, that muscle will contract as well. So there's really good evidence that says they have to work together as a team. And so when we have a separation in the abdominal wall, or we have surgical scars along the abdominal wall, maybe that's from a C-section, maybe that's from other abdominal surgeries, you know, gallbladder or hernia repair or something like that. Um, your abdominal wall needs to be able to work to have your pelvic floor work and your pelvic floor needs to work to give your abdominal wall support. So when we have any of those types of dysfunctions in the abdominal wall, we really need to train those groups of muscles together and get them to be as functional as we can. I think so often, and I know we'll, we'll talk about this more later on probably, but so often we think, okay, I have an issue in this, like one little part of my body. So I'm just going to hyper-focus on that one piece of my body and try to fix it. But we forget that everything is connected and, um, they have to work together properly. So you can't just isolate like the one, the one piece of your body as if that's all you have to think about. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. Well, okay. So a mom's listening to this and she's like, Oh yeah, I relate to this. Or maybe it's a mom who is new to all this and is like, Oh, I want to avoid these issues entirely. 
Um, kind of a general question, because I feel like there's a lot of conflicting information about this or advice. Uh, just in general, what forms of exercise are okay? You know, running, yoga, lifting weights. And are there any that we should definitely avoid? Yeah, also a great question. Uh, you know, my least favorite word in the English language is no. I don't like being told what not to do. I don't like being told no. And so I hate saying that there's like a bad exercise or an exercise not to do. There might be exercises that are better for you at a certain time or better ways to do them for your body, but I'm not a big fan of limiting everything. So I don't like these programs that say you can never do a crunch again. If it hurts when you do a crunch or you're seeing your belly dome out or you're feeling a lot of pressure and pain or discomfort in the pelvic floor, crunches are probably not the greatest exercise to be working on for core strength. But it doesn't mean you can't do them. It means that maybe we need to find a professional to work with, like a PT, who can help you figure out how to do those exercises better. But for general advice on, hey, what do we do today? What can I go do today that's going to be good for my body? I think walking is probably the most underrated form of exercise out there. It's available, right? You could walk to your mailbox. You could walk around the neighborhood. You could go to a park. You can push a stroller and take your kids with you. Uh, you know, there's so many places that we can walk in. And I know, you know, here in the Raleigh area, I'm super lucky. There's so many greenways and parks and great places to go that even when it's miserably hot outside, there's still some shade out there. There's a nice breeze. Um, so there's so many good places to walk. And it is something that, you know, you don't have to commit hours and hours and hours to it can be a 10 minute walk to just get a little bit of blood pump and get your heart rate up. And it's fantastic. It's good for overall body awareness. It's good for blood flow. It strengthens. It's good for cardiovascular system. Being outdoors helps your mental health. There's so many good things about just walking. Um, and if that doesn't float your boat, honestly, you know, the best thing to do exercise wise is something that you're going to keep up with and something that feels good for your body. So if I told you that, you know, my favorite example is underwater basket weaving, right? If I told you underwater basket weaving was the greatest exercise known to man, and you're like, Megan, I don't know how to weave. I don't have a pool and I hate getting my hair wet. Why would I do that? I'm not going to, I don't care how great that exercise might be. You're not going to do it. Right? So if you love cycling, but you're having pelvic pain, maybe we need to work on some strengthening for the hips, or we need to work on you know, getting some padded shorts that help just cushion things a little bit. Um, there are lots of ways that we can modify those exercises if there's something that you really love to do that doesn't feel quite right after having babies. I think one of the things that I learned as I was going through my own PT was just to be more aware of muscles and the way they were working that I just hadn't, I hadn't actually probably been able to like feel them really notice some of those underlying muscles, like when I was even using them. Right. And so now I'm just much more in tune. So there was a time where I took some time off from some of the things I, I really loved to do like cycle class. It wasn't good as I was healing at yeah. that time, but I've been able to go back to it, but I'm just much more aware now. And I can tell when something isn't helping my body, then I know enough now to make those adjustments so that I don't get to the point where I've injured myself again. Right. Yeah. Just like you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't try to do too much weights, you know, on your arm muscles, cause you're going to hurt yourself. It's the same thing, right? It's just like listening to your body sometimes makes yeah. a big difference. 
And that first step is awareness. I think you just touched on that a little bit was recognizing, hey, I'm doing this cycle class and it doesn't feel great, right? So how do you step back? And, and you know, one of my other biggest pieces of advice, if you're not into walking, you don't want to listen to anything else I've said is make sure that you can breathe. And you'll hear probably every pelvic PT talk about this forever and ever and ever. But a lot of the time when we run into trouble is we're doing these exercises where we have to hold our breath. So we're doing these crunches or we're doing even weightlifting or picking up our kiddos and we're holding our breath and we're bracing. And this is creating a lot of basically downward force. We call it intra-abdominal pressure in the PT world. So if you're holding your breath, you could imagine your diaphragm, that muscle that you breathe with that sits in basically the bottom of the rib cage, that muscle kind of locks down and it takes all of your abdominal contents and it pushes it down toward the bladder and toward the pelvic floor. And so if we're bracing with that diaphragm, we're bracing by holding our breath, we're not effectively using the pelvic floor and using the core or the transverse abdominus muscle, that deep belly muscle for support. So if you are doing an exercise and it doesn't feel great, or you just want to think about where can I start? Diaphragmatic breathing is a fancy way to say deep belly breathing. That's my favorite, favorite, favorite place to start. And then you start to use that in exercise. So make sure that you're breathing out on the hard part of a movement. So even like bending down to pick up your baby or pick up your kid, breathe out as you go to lift them. And that will help to take some of that pressure off the pelvic floor. So if there's nothing else you learn from this podcast, take that little piece away and that will help pelvic floor issues so, so much. That is a great tip. And it's one that you can just, you know, start applying right away. You don't have to like do a fancy exercise, just be aware of, of when and how you're breathing. So that's awesome. Well, what about more specifically, if someone's wanting to promote healing or strengthening of the pelvic floor, are there some exercises that can help with that? And then that's sort of like after the fact, and then thinking about women who might be pregnant, are there exercises or ways that we can kind of do some preventative care so that we're not going to have some of these issues later on? Yeah, absolutely. So once we've mastered that diaphragmatic breathing that we've just talked about, we know how to breathe. We're using our bellies to actually stretch and let go. Once we can do that, then we start to think a little bit more about that strengthening piece and kind of promoting that healing of the pelvic floor. It's not all about Kegels or Kegels. You can really say it either way, but we tend to think like, okay, yeah, if I'm going to strengthen a muscle, I've just got to like squeeze, squeeze, squeeze all the time. Right. Um, it's a small piece of the puzzle. It's absolutely great to be able to contract and relax your pelvic floor. It is one of the metrics that we look for, for strength and healing and recovery. But we know that the pelvic floor muscles are connected into so many other things. So breathing again is kind of that foundation. You can master your breath. You can start to help the pelvic floor move better. And then we think about mastering that deep core. So can we contract the belly again without bracing, without holding our breath, without kind of crunching forward and, and squishing in that deep layer of the belly is almost like if you imagine during pregnancy, like you're trying to, without moving, give your baby a hug. So you're almost like drawing that belly button up and in. That's how you activate that transverse abdominus muscle. So it's just that low engagement, that pull in. That's one of the best things once we can breathe, once we can contract it and release the pelvic floor. We want to find that transverse abdominus muscle. We want to be able to engage that. 
And that's really kind of building our deep foundation. It's sort of like pouring the foundation for a house, right? You can't put the walls up until you have that nice solid structure. And then it becomes even more about kind of the functional things, right? So what are your hips doing? How are your glutes functioning? We talk a lot about kind of the um, like glute amnesia or like the, the sleepy butt muscles, basically you kind of get the mom butt where it's just tucked under and it's not working well for you. And you kind of feel like, where did it go? Do I even have muscles there? So strengthening those is a really, really great way to start to promote healing and strengthening in the pelvic floor. And that can look like um, a glute bridge. If you've ever done yoga or bar, it's um, a super easy exercise to start waking up the glutes, even squats, um, lunges, single leg balance. One of my favorite little tricks is stand on one foot while you're brushing your teeth way harder than it sounds <laughs> and you get a lot of that kind of dynamic control right because you're having to balance at your ankle you're balancing at your knee you're balancing at your hip to stay on one foot so you know balance on the left leg while you brush the top teeth and then balance on your right leg while you're brushing your bottom teeth and it's a good challenge you know if you're brushing your teeth long enough that's a pretty good workout <laughs> so those can be just some little things some of that squats bridges single leg balance lunges even like step ups that sort of thing are all really really good for creating that integration of pelvic floor strength with the hip strength and kind of those other muscles that are going to give you really good balance and again, and, what just came up is again, all that integration, right. Of all the different muscles and how they're working together. Yeah, for sure. And then what do we do during pregnancy? Right. Because it, it's a marathon, not a sprint, right. You're, you want to really strengthen these muscles, prepare the body. And you got some time to do that during pregnancy. It's not necessarily a time that we want to be starting something new. So if you haven't been a big exerciser, this is not the time to join, you know, some boot camp for hours and hours and hours a day. But it's absolutely a time where again we can be walking, we can be doing some even like prenatal yoga. There are a lot of really good options for that, both in-person classes, there are a lot of online options. It's kind of one of those good things that have come out of the last two years. There's a lot more content available online now than there used to be. Um, whether that's pre-recorded classes or live classes you can follow along with online, um, tons of great, um, just like prenatal yoga, right? So it's just moving, it's getting blood flow, it's getting you finding some of these muscles around the hips, around the core, around the pelvis that are really going to go through a lot during pregnancy. And so I like to kind of break it up almost into trimesters, like you break up parts of pregnancy, right? Are the phases that you should be doing exercise during pregnancy. So you might not feel super great in that first trimester, right? So maybe this is the time where we're maintaining the type of exercise that we were trying to do before pregnancy, but with some modifications, right? If you were a big runner and you're just feeling awful, maybe you again, walk a little bit more. You're taking that same time you'd spend running, but you're going for long walks. Maybe you're thinking about just doing some gentle strengthening at home, right? This could be squats, bridges, lunges, little things that just feel good to move. That can be a bit of a challenge when you aren't feeling your best, but I promise even setting a timer for five minutes and practicing some deep breathing, 
just a little bit of movement can actually help you feel a lot better. In that second trimester, we tend to get that almost a spurt of energy sometimes. You start to feel a little bit better, but that weight and pressure in your body maybe hasn't quite caught up. Again, don't start training for a marathon at this point, a literal marathon. We're training for a figurative marathon here. But we can do a little bit more strengthening. Maybe those walks are longer. Maybe we're, you know, continuing to do exercise pretty consistently throughout that time. And we're still focused on strength here. So again, we talked about that trampoline of the pelvic floor that's trying to support growing baby. We need that to be strong. So we can be doing some Kegels here. We can be working on hip strengthening. We can be working on that deep core strengthening too, keeping those muscles strong because they're going to have a lot of stress on them coming up. And then as we move into that third trimester, we're thinking a little bit more about mobility. You've built that foundation of strength in your muscles. And now we need to make sure they have that movement and that capacity to be able to relax and lengthen. There's a, a common um, kind of misconception out there that the pelvic floor muscles push the baby out. The pelvic floor muscles absolutely do no pushing whatsoever. The uterus itself is what's contracting and releasing to help move the baby down. The pelvic floor muscles really have to open to let everything out and to let baby out, right? And this is assuming a vaginal delivery, right? There are lots of different um, like gentle C-sections and things like that where you can push for a C-section. That's a whole different topic of conversation, but talking just strictly about a, a vaginal delivery here, you know, your pelvic floor muscles have to be able to open, your hip flexors have to be able to open to create enough space in the pelvis to get the baby out. And so we want to be thinking about that lengthening and that releasing. Again, breathing can be great here. There are a lot of different hip openers and different stretches that we can work on. And then at the very tail end of pregnancy, usually around that 34 to 36 weeks, there's something called perineal stretching or perineal massage that some people might be familiar with. Um, and that's a great thing to talk to you know, your OB and your birth team about because that's something that you can start practicing at home. There's, and, and again, a whole other topic that we could dive into here on, okay, is it helpful to do that perineal massage? Is it not? Is it going to stop you from tearing? There's not a lot of great evidence that says doing a ton of perineal massage will stop you from tearing. It, there's not good evidence for that. But is it going to make you more aware of your pelvic floor? Is it going to help you coordinate those muscles? Is it going to help you prepare for delivery a little bit better? Is it going to give you tools and techniques that might help? Yes. It's kind of like, you know, if you've ever gone to a hot yoga class, you can touch your toes in a hot yoga class. If you haven't been able to touch your toes regularly, you're going to feel terrible later <laughs> after you've done that. <laughs> so if you could practice a little bit of stretching ahead of time, then when you have to touch your toes in that hot yoga class, it's going to feel a whole lot better the next day because those muscles were more ready for it. So it may not prevent tearing, but it's absolutely still a, a technique and a tool that's worth it. Um, so as far as, as prevention, um, one more quick topic, I might be rambling a little bit here, but one more quick, thing that, <laughs> one more thing that I love to, to touch on here is I get this question all the time about, should I have a C-section to save my pelvic floor? And absolutely resoundingly, the answer is no, it is not it is not a C-section or, or vaginal delivery to save your pelvic floor. It's what is best for you and your birthing team and your baby. 
And there is just as much incidence of things like urinary incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse, whether you pushed a baby out or not, or had a C-section. So it's a very personal choice for sure and a, and a very emotional choice a lot of times, but there isn't one way to kind of save your pelvic floor. All of these things that we've just talked about, all of this prevention and this activity and staying strong and staying mobile and honestly just becoming aware of what your pelvic floor muscles are able to do and how you can use them, how you can relax them best. Those are the things that are going to help your pelvic floor. So it's not a matter of the, the method of delivery, so to speak. I love that you brought up too all those, uh, the reminders about the importance of being able to relax those muscles and the opening of those muscles. Cause a lot of times we think if we're starting to have, sometimes, I mean, no, I thought I was just like, I needed to like work the muscles harder. And some of the issue may actually be that they're not able to relax properly, which you don't think about. And that's, yeah a lot harder to, to wrap your head around or to, to become aware of how, even how to do that. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So like I told you got so many questions. And so I'm going to kind of lump together a few of the questions here that are related to postpartum care, since we just sort of talked a little bit about pregnancy there. Um, some of the questions I received were, how can you know if your perennial tearing is healing well, what to do if it's not healing well, if breastfeeding affects pelvic floor recovery, how can pelvic floor issues affect sex? How do you know if your body is ready to resume intimacy? And then a big one that actually came up several times was if you know you plan to have more children, is there even a point of trying to heal your pelvic floor or resolve issues with abdominal wall situation between babies? So there were several questions So you can kind of answer that however. It works best, I love right? it. I love it all. Let's take it kind of piece by piece here. So starting with tearing, lots of different factors there, of course, but in general, I like to think about that a lot, like any other cut or tear or laceration in the body, right? We're talking about normal healing time and that can take around four to six weeks at a minimum. And that's a lot of where they get that, you know, okay, six week cutoff. You're going to have a six week postpartum check. We'll see if you're kind of ready to go as they say. And that's basically to see, has everything healed the way that we would expect it to by that point. If you've ever had like a scar or anything, you know, that how it looks at six weeks is not ultimately how it ends up healing. Right? So that six week time frame is Hey, what is going on? Are we still having any bleeding there? You shouldn't be having a lot of bleeding past that six week mark. You shouldn't be feeling any significant pain with sitting or when I hear a lot, it's like, it feels like something's pulling when I squat or pulling when I sit down or like a heaviness or a stinging sitting on the toilet, maybe. So those are all things that we would say, Hey, Maybe we should get this checked out again if it's kind of that sharp stabbing, really uncomfortable or stingy pain. Um, and then as things heal, we think about like a tight scar. So it, assuming that everything heals on the surface, looks good, no tearing, so it's still open. Then we want to say, hey, is there some sort of like tightness in that scar? 
And do we need to mobilize that? So just like you can massage scars anywhere else in the body, right? You've got a knee replacement, you might massage that scar to help it feel better. Again, we talk about that perineal massaging. There are lots of different things out there that we can do to help massage some of that. I oftentimes will recommend using a vibrator on that area as well. Actually can help to just desensitize and break up that scar tissue. And for anybody who's super curious, we're talking about like a small bullet style vibrators, not giant ones. And it's all external that we're working on that scar. Um, lots more detail that we could go into on that as well. Um, but we want to make sure that that scar is movable. It doesn't feel um, super stiff or thick. And it's not like stinging, burning, or tight. So those are all things that your OBs can assess, pelvic floor PTs can assess as well and give you some tips and tricks if it doesn't feel like it's healing very well. There's one other little caveat to that if you wanna look at a scar as it's healing, if there's a lot of extra kind of pink tissue, there's something called granulation tissue that can happen with scars as well. And it basically is like if you ever had an ear piercing or something that kind of grew a little too thick, you can kind of get a keloid type scar or that granulation tissue um, in the perineum as well. So if something just doesn't look right, doesn't feel right, it feels like a little um, skin tag or a little flap or just one super sensitive area, I always recommend going back to your OB and just saying, hey, I think there might be some granulation tissue is sort of the key word there. And it's a super simple procedure oftentimes where they can actually paint that with a little bit of silver nitrate and it will um, just help it go away. So quick fix on that one. So if it is that, there's your little tip on tearing, but look at it honestly is my biggest thing. It can be a little bit scary, but get out a hand mirror and just take a look. Be familiar if you haven't had babies yet on what things look like before. Know that it's gonna look a little different after, but knowing your body can really help you see if that tearing is healing well. And then as far as what happens with breastfeeding and the pelvic floor, great question. Uh, pelvic floor muscles are estrogen sensitive and breastfeeding actually does kind of keep our estrogen levels just a little bit lower. So estrogen typically drops a little bit in the last phase of pregnancy, and then it stays a little bit low, especially if you're breastfeeding or you're lactating, and then it slowly starts to come back up. Your hormone levels don't actually return to normal until at least you know, six weeks after you stop breastfeeding. So it can take a while. It can take even longer than that as well. Uh, but generally we do have that decrease in estrogen with breastfeeding or lactating. So if you're pumping as well. And what that means is that the pelvic floor tissues, the vaginal tissues might just be a little bit drier. Sometimes that dryness can affect healing. It's kind of like having dry skin. It doesn't heal quite as well as nice, soft, moisturized skin. But much like you can put lotion on your skin, there are moisturizers for your pelvic floor, not the same necessarily as moisturizers you use in other parts of the body, but there are great things out there. If there aren't any other hormone concerns, there are some topical estrogens that your healthcare providers, your OBGYNs can provide um, and prescribe that actually can just help on that tissue itself. They're minimally absorbed into the bloodstream. So talking about that with your provider can be really helpful. It, it, mixed evidence basically on whether it affects um, milk supply, but good conversation to have with your providers on that one. And then if that's not an option for you, you're just not feeling like doing that topical estrogen, 
there are other vaginal moisturizers. There is something called Replense. There is a vitamin E oil, coconut oil, aloe, lots of different um, potential things. And again, that's going to be kind of a, a personal decision based on what you're feeling and then what your, your birth team can recommend as well. Each of them have their pros and cons. So using oil-based moisturizers or lubricants, um, not a good option if you're using condoms as contraception postpartum, because that, um, the oil actually can cause them to be more likely to tear. So lots of, lots of different things to think about with that, but long story is you have a little bit of a drop in estrogen with breastfeeding and with lactating that can affect dryness in the pelvic floor. Not a reason to not breastfeed, but it's just something to think about and to know that there absolutely are options and there are things that you can do to help with that dryness for sure. I think our next question there was how can pelvic floor issues affect sex and how to know when you're ready to go back? Well, lots and lots and lots of personal decision there for sure. There's so many things surrounding pregnancy and delivery. If we're talking about that as where the pelvic floor dysfunction comes from, if you feel ready, that's a good start, right? It's not something that needs to be forced. It's not something that has a specific timeline. This can look different for everybody. And if you're not feeling into it at six weeks or 10 weeks or 12 weeks, that's okay. In general, we say wait that amount of time because your uterus is still shrinking back down to its normal size. The pelvic floor muscles are still healing. The cervix is still closing. So a lot of that wait at least six weeks is kind of an infection risk side of things. So that's something that I always say, listen to that as best you can. Listen to that six week time frame as far as going back to sex or intimacy. There are lots of things you can do that are not penetrative sex as well. And those can be good ways to kind of build that intimacy, especially as a first time parent, it can be really hard to find that with your partner. Again, you know, you've just been through something amazing and crazy and traumatic on the body. And sometimes that can create maybe a little bit of, of stress on a relationship, or it can create a little bit of strain on you as a person too. And even just sitting on the couch and holding hands with your partner or cuddling with your partner and your baby, like everybody together, you know, there's a lot of that level of intimacy that can be really, really powerful and really helpful for just creating that bond postpartum because you're just trying to navigate this whole new family setup, this whole new sensation in your body, whole new idea of who you are as a person and a parent. And that can be really, really challenging. So I think don't underestimate some of the non pelvic floor related um, levels of intimacy there. But as far as the pelvic floor, knowing that your muscles feel okay, right? So if we're not having pain with sitting, we're not having, you know, pain with urination or bowel movements, those are really good kind of check boxes to say, Hey, am I, am I ready for this? And then don't forget that lube is definitely your friend postpartum. Again, we talked about that dryness. You might need a little more than you did before baby. You might need a different kind entirely. And there are 
so many, so many options out there to kind of find that right fit. And you might have to try a couple of them before you find the best one for you. Um, but that's definitely one of my top things. Make sure you've got a lubricant with you when you do feel ready and don't let anybody rush you. Just to be willing to have those maybe awkward conversations with your spouse, I think is so valuable because it's only when, you know, they can't read our minds. So Um, if you get upset at, you know, your spouse, because they didn't read your mind, maybe you could use words to communicate. (laughs) It might make it a little easier. Communication (laughs) is huge. And it's, it's silly that it's something we can be so embarrassed about, especially when it comes to intimacy and sex, when you might've been married for years, right? You could have been with this person for ever and ever and ever. And it can still feel awkward for some of us to talk about, especially postpartum because things that were good or worked well or felt good before might not feel the same postpartum. And that's perfectly normal, perfectly okay. But again, your partner can't read your mind. They do not know that. And they're gonna be like, what on earth? I thought this was great. Why do you not like this anymore? you got to tell them. Right. Exactly. What about this issue of if you're going to have more children or you're thinking about, you know, planning for that in the future, is there a point to doing anything now? Absolutely. Yes. That is a resounding. Yes. There is definitely a point to doing something between babies. Again, I think the easiest way to think about this is relating it to other parts of the body If you ran a marathon and it didn't go really well, but for some bizarre reason, you had decided I'm going to sign up for two marathons. Let's say that they're a year and a half apart and you've already signed up for them. You know, you're going to do these two marathons. You do the first one. You're like, Ooh, that training maybe wasn't so great. Maybe I pulled my quad running this race or, you know, I had ankle pain and I don't know. It's, it doesn't feel good. Would you do the exact same training before the next race? No, absolutely not. You would try and heal and recover. You would treat that quad strain. You would treat your nagging ankle. You'd buy some new shoes and get yourself some new running clothes. And you would try it again a little differently, right? So when we do have some of these things that arise postpartum, your body's been through a marathon, right? It grew this baby. It got this baby out and into the world and it is beautiful and amazing. And we want to honor that. And we want to let those muscles recover because it's going to make things feel so much better the next time. So again, rehabbing the core. So if we're talking about diastasis, if we think about the abdominal wall is again, kind of giving the baby a hug, right? We expect to have a separation of those muscles at the point of delivery. Anybody who makes it full term will have some degree of separation in the abdominal wall. Absolutely normal. It absolutely can heal on its own. Sometimes it needs a little bit of help. And the stronger we are, you know, going into a pregnancy and delivery, the easier that recovery is. So if you have a diastasis after the first pregnancy, you can heal that, rehab it, get it strong, and it will make that next delivery so much easier. It will make your recovery easier. And I think what I see, you know, time and again in this field is a lot of people say, Hey, there, I didn't think there was a point in doing something for first baby, or I felt really great after the first pregnancy and then waited five or six years. And for the next one, I wasn't prepared. So learning where these muscles are learning how to strengthen can really just help set you up for success. 
and make that recovery just so, so much easier. And I always like to remind people, you know, after the first pregnancy and delivery, more often than not, you are kind of recovering as your baby gets more mobile, right? Baby's not going anywhere the first couple of months right after you deliver, right? When you have a second one, the first one's mobile. So the first one may or may not be old enough to help out, but they're definitely going to be more mobile and moving around. So you're going to have to chase after them. And you're not going to have that same kind of um, slow introduction <laughs> into mobility. And so when you're stronger going into that, right, it can just make that whole transition from, you know, one to two, two to three, whatever number we're at, um, baby wise, it can just make that so much easier. So yes, heal and recover between for sure. I love that word picture of you wouldn't, you know, do one marathon and then just be like, wow, I pulled a muscle. I guess I just won't do anything to prepare for the next marathon. Yeah. I was like, that's where I'm like, oh guys, please learn from my mistakes. Don't wait like five children before you try to deal with problems. Not a good plan. Um, another really common question that came up repeatedly was all sort of related to bathroom issues. So of course there's common issues of urinary incontinence or frequent urination or difficulty emptying the bladder fully. One listener mentioned that she has an urge to pee whenever she lifts or carries her toddler. A lot of people ask questions related to bowel function. You know, sometimes it's difficulty evacuating the bowels or feeling like there's a bulge or pressure. Or then the opposite end with, you know, rectal incontinence. So are there any practical strategies we can implement to deal with all of these elimination issues? Because those can just really affect your ordinary life and they can be so embarrassing. Absolutely. The easiest number one thing you could probably do today without having to go anywhere is get yourself a squatty potty. I wish they paid me to sell squatty potties, but they do not. <laughs> Um, if you're not familiar, look it up. They were on Shark Tank, I think, a number of years back. Basically, they just got this awesome market on creating a step stool for your toilet. Most of us here in the U.S. have what they like to call comfort height toilets, which mean you don't have to squat down as low to sit on the toilet, but it also puts your pelvic floor in actually a really not great position. So when you sit on the toilet and your knees are lower, than your hips, your pelvic floor doesn't relax all the way because you're almost still standing a little bit, right? Like you're still in kind of this upright sort of position for your pelvic floor muscles to be able to relax. You really want your knees up a little bit higher than your hips and you want to be fully supported. So this does not mean that you're like perching on the side of the toilet or you're holding your knees up in the air with your hands. Um, I've seen all sorts of creative things. It doesn't mean like pointing your toes so that your heels are lifting up. Uh, it means prop your feet up on a little step stool. It could be your kid's little potty, maybe if that's by the toilet. It could be, um, you know, a trash can. If you could turn it on its side and prop your feet up on that. Um, I've seen people use uh, like two rolls of toilet paper to put their feet up on <laughs> to get their knees up a little higher, whatever works. But Squatty Potty brand is out there. Their basic one will cost you like 20 bucks on Amazon, I think, or Bed Bath & Beyond. They've got fancy like bamboo ones that will match your decor. They got the market on everything. They got like a SpongeBob themed one out there, everything. 
but that squatty potty is great and it's marketed to help with bowel movements, but I do find that it can be helpful for emptying the bladder as well. A couple other really, really big tips that I think you can start doing right away is quit speed peeing. If there is somebody at the door knocking, tell them to wait. Your kids will be okay for the next five seconds that you spend sitting on the toilet and breathing and releasing everything. If you are trying to force urine out super fast, you actually can create some tension in the pelvic floor. So you're stopping yourself from emptying all the way. So sit, relax as best you can. I know it's easy to say relax and it's not a very relaxing thing, but making sure that you can breathe, letting everything go. Don't try to force it out. Those are some super helpful things. As far as not being able to empty the bladder all the way, sometimes it's again about that positioning of the bladder. So we talked a little bit about prolapse and this could be bladder emptying or bowel emptying. If your organs are sitting a little bit lower, there might not be quite as direct an exit for the things inside. So we may have to do some little like rocks side to side. So kind of like you're um, doing a pelvic tilt, if you're familiar with that, or kind of twerking a little bit, but in slow motion. <laughs> so a little like rock forward and back or side to side, even just kind of leaning side to side. Um, those little movements can help kind of shift things around a little bit better as well. Um, as far as bowel movements, there are some different techniques that you can use to help just give a little bit of support, even using a little bit of pressure just gently against the perineum can help with um, rectal prolapse or any bowel prolapse. So just giving a little bit of support externally to the pelvic floor can actually be helpful for emptying the bowels. Um, but lots of, lots of different strategies. If none of those are working for you, then do give your local pelvic PT a call because we would love to talk in more detail with you about it for sure. Um, as one more thing I wanted to touch on there with the urge to pee whenever you lift the toddler or the baby, that always comes back to breath for me. So whoever you are out there who has this question, try breathing out when you lift your toddler. A lot of times it's just that pressure of lifting the baby up, holding your breath, that's pushing down onto the pelvic floor. And then it's the physical pressure of baby sitting on your belly or your bladder or toddler sitting on your belly or your bladder. So try, you know, just giving a little bit more support. Don't rest your toddler on your hip or on your belly, and then make sure that you're breathing the whole time. And that should be really helpful for that as well. Really good tips. Um, and I'll say too, I was at Aldi and saw, it must've been like an off-brand. I doubt Squatty Potty was at Aldi, but even they've even come to Aldi. So you can find anything you need there. Um, Love yeah, it. such a, such an easily accessible thing that can make a huge difference. Well, one mom asked, she said, I've been looking into online or do at home programs for pelvic floor and diastasis recti healing. Cause right now she doesn't have access to a PT and she's seen some similarities among the programs and some differences. So she was wondering what she should be looking for. And if there are any red flags, um, if she sees it, as she's reading or researching a program or any methods she should avoid, or I guess on the flip side, be looking into. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I really look at with all of those online programs is be wary of things that promise you everything. So when you have a program that says, oh, we can help you with all of these different things, you know, we're going to help you have a super strong pelvic floor and heal this and heal that. 
if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> and we want to make sure that we have qualified people that are creating these programs and providing the content. And so what I see a lot is people who have gone through pregnancy and done their own exercise journey. And they're trying to market this saying that, Hey, you know, we have the best core exercises. We're going to help you with everything. So certifications aren't everything, but personal experience also isn't everything. So knowing that who is designed the program is qualified to do so. So are they, you know, a, a personal trainer with actual credentials in pregnancy and postpartum rehabilitation and conditioning, that there are certifications for that. Are they a pelvic health physical therapist? There are programs out there that are designed by PTs. And do they offer you resources for if this doesn't work? And so a lot of times these programs will say, you know, this is what you should be doing. You've got to do all of this. And it feels too good to be true. And they say, they kind of put the blame on you. Like, well, if this doesn't work, it's not our fault, right? It's, it's you that didn't, that didn't make it work in this program. And that's not the case. Not all programs work for everybody. They are not one size fits all, but they are fantastic resources. Uh, so, you know, don't, don't listen to every single thing that's out there and take that as the one thing you've got to do. Be inquisitive, be questioning for some of these different programs and look at the credentials for who developed them. And do they give you resources for your local community or places to find that? Um, as far as kind of access to PT, I know there's lots of, of different types of access out there, but again, one of the nice things that's come out of the last couple of years is that there are a lot more online resources. While it's not our first go-to most of the time for pelvic floor conditions and for you know diastasis, there are PTs, myself included, who offer telehealth services, and that can be really great. And for some practices, some providers, it is it can be covered by insurance or reimbursed by insurance, which is great too. Um, so there are options. So if you find a program that doesn't seem like it's working out for you and you want a little bit of extra, there are other options out there that could be um, more of like a, a personalized, but still virtual kind of helping with that access side of things too. You know, I'm so thankful that I was uh, able to, to come and get help from you a few, several years ago. It was not covered, but I did just sort of, my husband and I talked about it and we viewed it as, as a worthwhile investment because if, if I continued down the same path, I was going to end up needing surgery or some sort of crazy intervention later on that was probably going to be a lot more expensive and both time and money than doing a little bit of prevention on this end. So, um, for the mom who is, is able to go to in-person physical therapy, what are the first steps she should take? Um, is it necessary to go to a pelvic specialist? If you're dealing with these issues, um, are internal exams necessary? Uh, I know one of my listeners emailed and mentioned she had gone to her doctor and to a PT, but neither did an internal exam to evaluate her prolapse, which seemed a little odd to me, but maybe that's typical. So I guess, how do we go about just choosing a PT who will actually help us? Cause we're busy. Like if we take the time to do this, it needs to be worthwhile. Yes, absolutely. You know, there, again, there's so much out there these days. And I think in, in the world of, of social media, there's a lot more people who are hearing about public health providers included and who want to market that. And it's not necessary all the time to do an internal assessment. 
I have lots of patients who come in and they maybe just don't want to, right? They're just not comfortable with that internal assessment. Um, and for anybody who doesn't know in the PT world, an internal pelvic floor assessment is basically how we do like muscle testing and we see the tone of the pelvic floor muscles and we figure out what your strength is and how well the right sides work and the left sides work and all that jazz. It's a little bit like seeing a gynecologist, although we just use a gloved finger inserted vaginally or rectally, depending on what we're assessing. Um, we don't use stirrups or speculums. It tends to be much more comfortable than a lot of those speculum exams. Um, but it does help us assess for strength and prolapse and really get that good idea of what is going on with your muscular system. So they aren't necessary, but they're a huge, huge part of the puzzle. And they can be really, really helpful in one accurately figuring out what's going on. There are a lot of symptoms that can sound like prolapse that are actually a tight muscle in the pelvic floor. So kind of like a knot in the pelvic floor can sound and feel from a symptom perspective, a lot like prolapse. So we want to make sure that we're appropriately figuring out which one that is. So not necessary, but probably useful, especially when you're diagnosing prolapse. Um, so I, I would say, you know, if you're having a lot of these pelvic floor issues, you're feeling, you know, stress incontinence or fecal incontinence. So we're losing urine or bowel when, movements when we don't want to you want to make sure that you're going to a specialist. Um, same thing's true even of diastasis recti. We touched briefly on the fact that the pelvic floor and the abdominal wall are best friends. So if you can't get that good assessment of the pelvic floor or you're not familiar enough with those tissues, you're going to be missing something as a provider treating somebody who has diastasis if you're not also able to address the pelvic floor. So Long story short, yes, I do think that it, it's pretty necessary to see a pelvic specialist. The nice thing is there are a lot more orthopedic PTs out there that know when to send people to a pelvic specialist. So if you've gone or you don't have access to a pelvic PT and you've gone to a regular physical therapist, most of the time they know somebody who's a pelvic floor expert and they can say, Hey, I'm going to send you to this person. Or do you mind if I consult with this person and ask them a couple of questions about your case? And so we're pretty good at networking with each other in the PT world to make sure that our patients are getting the best care. So if you can't get to a specialist, I don't think it's the, the end of the world, but I do think that first choice, you know, gold standard would be go see a pelvic specialist for these things. And again, you know, choosing a PT can be so personal as well. And there are so many options out there, much like the online programs, be wary of somebody who says they can do absolutely everything, right? Because we're not miracle workers. We want you to be able to be successful, right? And so look for somebody who has the time to listen to you and is going to goal set with you and not tell you, well, you can never run again because you've had a prolapse. That's absolutely not true. You want somebody that says, hey, maybe if you have a prolapse and you wanna run, maybe we're gonna modify that so you feel comfortable on these runs. Maybe we're gonna get you some support. We're gonna try these different things to make that run more comfortable or to let you be able to go to that cycle class and be more comfortable. We're gonna take it back before we build that up, but we're gonna get there. Right? You want somebody that's working with you, setting those goals. And then ultimately, who do you feel comfortable with? Because 
we're going to ask you a lot of personal questions. If that wasn't clear by the things that we've talked about so far today, we're going to ask you all the questions and you don't always have to tell us the answers right away, but you've got to feel comfortable enough with your provider to kind of figure that out and see if it is a good fit. And are you comfortable asking those questions, answering those questions? Most of us are more than happy to do what we call like a consultation call. So if you do find a PT and you're, you're curious, ask them if they do, you know, a free 15 minute phone consultation, or if you can email them and ask some questions. And to me, that's one of the best ways because I'm comfortable asking these questions, but I want you to be comfortable giving me the answers back. Right. So I am more than happy to talk to anybody on the phone first and see if it would be a good fit. So those are all good ways to to see. And there's always the insurance question as well. Some providers take insurance, some don't. You already touched on some insurances cover therapy and some don't. Um, I think that insurance should cover everything, but it's not always the case. So if you are using insurance and you want to make sure that that's covered on the front end, that's a question to ask. A lot of providers are also going to more of an out of network model where we'll provide you with a, we call like a super bill, we'll provide you with a um, kind of itemization of what we do that you can submit to your insurance and get reimbursed later. So it kind of cuts out the middleman a little bit for the providers and it lets us be um, a little more focused on you versus focused on the insurance companies, which is a, a good option as well for those people who can go that route. Those are really good tips. Um, I guess another question that came up is if someone goes to physical therapy, how common is it for the symptoms to be re-aggravated or how do you know if you need to go back? Yeah, I always like to leave people with what I call like a toolbox right? So I want you to leave PT and not necessarily have exercises you have to do for the rest of your life, but I want you to have these tools and we don't all expect to feel hundred percent all the time, right? Sometimes we sleep weird and our shoulders hurt or our neck hurts, or we, you know, stub our toes and we don't feel great, but we know we can, you know, stretch our necks. We can sleep a little better, get a new pillow, stop running into the coffee table and we'll feel better. Right? So I want you to have those tools after you come to physical therapy. And so you have these lists of things that say, Hey, if I go back to cycling and I start feeling some of that heaviness and pressure again, I'm going to pull out this sheet or I'm going to pull up that email and I'm going to go through a couple of these stretches and exercises, and I'm going to do them for a little bit. And if they don't take care of that issue, that's when I'm going to go back. Or if it feels different than it did the first time. So it's common to have things kind of flare up and come and go, but it shouldn't be to the same extent. And a lot of the cases are, we stopped doing our exercises. We got a little lazy. That's all right. Life happens. That is totally fine. But you've got these tools where you can start them again. You can do them for a week or two. If it feels like things aren't getting better in that week or two, call your PT, call your provider and see if you need to go in again. Yeah. Again, it's like just being aware of your body. I'm, I'm just so much more aware of things now, right? So that I can, can make those adjustments, those micro adjustments on my own so that I don't end up back where I was. <laughs> this has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to share with us. I know this is going to be an encouragement and a help to so many moms who are listening. So I'm just really excited, but here at the end, 
I do want to ask you a question I ask all my guests and that's just what are you personally reading lately? Yeah, I'm a huge nerd. I will be perfectly honest. I read a lot of research articles on physical therapy because I love it. And I think it's fantastic. When I'm not reading research articles, I am a big fan of like murder mysteries and kind of cheesy beach reads. I like things that are a little light and fluffy. So uh, sitting on my nightstand right now is the seven and a half deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. I'd heard good things about it. I think it's a murder mystery of some sort, but I am not far enough in to tell you if it's any good yet. <laughs> hey, I will have to check that out. I'm a big fan of, of murder mysteries as well. There's something very soothing for some odd reason about <laughs> a murder mystery. You know, everything just gets tied up in a nice bow at the end. Justice is done. It's lovely. It is. It really is. <laughs> Megan, where can people find you all around the internet? Yeah, so you can find me on my website, which is MomentumPhysioNC.com, and then on Instagram at that same handle, at MomentumPhysioNC. Great, and I will have those things linked up in the show notes for this episode over at HumilityAndDoxology.com. Thanks so much, Megan. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special episode from the Homeschool Conversations with Humility and Doxology podcast. If you want to review any of the things discussed in today's episode, click through in the show notes to find the full transcript for this episode. And would you please take a moment to share this podcast episode or just the podcast as a whole with a friend? It's one of the best ways you can encourage and support the podcast. Until next time.